still my soul. Boy, how that fits with our message today and our discussion today about God's grace and our suffering. God's grace and suffering. Last Sunday, we looked at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, really 1 through 3. Uh, but we read 1 through 5, and that's what we're going to read again today. Today's sermon is just a little different from what I normally do. So I just want to warn you up front, I don't have a creative bone in my body. You can ask anybody. I think the one time I tried to be creative was when I did a children's camp, which I only did one, never did another one, back years ago when I was in college, and I preached on the writing on the wall with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? And I spent hours getting a, bo- a piece of plywood ready, and I put Elmer's glue on it, writing out, meeny, meeny, tinkle up Sharon, you know, the, the Hebrew, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And I put Elmer's glue on there, wrote it out in big letters, and then put black gunpowder on it, sprinkled it on there. And I set it up, we were outside, that's a good thing, I set it up back behind the place, kind of hidden, and I put a, 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 a stream of black gunpowder over to where I was speaking, right at my feet. And I had a candle sitting on the, the outdoor pulpit, rock pulpit. And uh, when I got to that point, I said, and the word of the Lord came to Nebuchadnezzar, written on the wall by his finger. I took the candle, I threw it on the gunpowder, it rushed up to the port, it wrote it out in lightning, in, in words, in, in you know, beautiful burning gunpowder, smoke everywhere, and scared those kids half to death. (laughs) I had to quit the sermon. I was over. It might as well, you know, it was done. So so that was my one creative moment in my sermonizing uh, until today. And it's nothing like that. There's no black gunpowder up here. But I want us to think about it in a way that sometimes we don't think about things. You know, I I hope you heard those songs we sang this morning. I hope you didn't just read words on a screen and say, oh, that's a a great song. We sing it. It sounds good. And we kind of sing it out of roteness almost. I hope you think about those words that we say, those words that we sing as we lift them up to our Lord. But sometimes, especially with some of the older hymns, we will sing those because we've sung them since our childhood and we fail to see the beauty and the majesty of what is written. I want us today to take the Scripture and take a hymn and and use the hymn to illustrate what I want us to think about today. But but what we're going to do is each time I get to these six points of my sermon... We will come to that point, and we will sing a stanza of that hymn. Judy is staying on the keyboard for me today, so I don't have to lead it a cappello. And I need for you to sing out, because if you don't, on the DVD back there and on the Internet when it goes out, it's just going to be me singing a solo, and people will stop listening if we do that. So I need for you to sing out on that. You know this great hymn. Go ahead and put that first slide up there uh, with the title of it on there. And the hymn is entitled... How firm a foundation, maybe. It's supposed to be. Technology is wonderful until it doesn't work. Oh, there it is. Okay. There it is. How firm a foundation. You know that, you know that hymn. 
And we're going to move through that as we look at the text. And, and so I want, I'm going to read John 9, 1 through 5, and then I'm going to uh, use that as the basis for the message, but depart from it to some other scriptures, okay? So it's a little different from a Bill Haynes normal sermon, but that's all right, I'm sure you're thinking right now. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We talked about the significance of that last week. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, master, who sinned, the man or his parents? The man before he was born or his parents before he was born, that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man has sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that's the prologue. We'll get to the healing after Easter, the next two Sundays will be on the crucifixion and on the resurrection. And then, but we'll come back to John after Easter and pick up with the actual miracle itself. But I want you to see here something about this. John makes that statement that we looked at last week in depth, and I'm not going to repeat everything I said last week, but we looked at this point that Jesus said to his disciples, this man didn't sin, his parents didn't sin, although we know all, all sickness, all disease, all infirmity are ultimately a result of sin because they're a result of the fall when sin entered in the world. But they're talking about a specific sin. What did he do in the womb that caused him to be born blind? Or what did his parents do that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus said, I want you to understand, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents. He is blind from birth all these years for one reason and one reason only, and that is that the glory of God might be seen, that the works of God might be made evident, that God might be exalted and seen in what's taking place in this man's life and in my ministry to him. Now, I know the average American mind, the average American Christian mind Here's Jesus say, it's not because of him, it's not because of his parents, but he is blind from birth, a horrible circumstance to be in, for one reason and one reason only, that the, the works of God might be displayed in him. It, literally, that the work of God might glorify God through this one who's been blind from birth. And our immediate statement is, our immediate thought is, that's just not fair. He didn't do anything to deserve this. He didn't do anything to get this. It's just not fair. I mean, our, our whole idea of fairness is so distorted and so misunderstood, so misunderstands the work of God. Because, you see, here's what we think in America. We think that life is for us. Life is for me. It's for me to benefit from. It's for me to enjoy. It's for me to get glory out of. And for one moment to think that I might have an affirmity, or this man 2,000 years ago might have an affirmity, a very serious affirmity, for one reason, that God might be glorified in it. To, to the American Christian mind, that is just absolutely absurd because we think it's all about us. Listen to our evangelism most of the time. Hey, come to Jesus. All your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus, you'll be happy. 
Come to Jesus. Some on TV will tell you, and you'll be wealthy and healthy, and you'll never have another problem in all your life. The only problem with that is that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says all of life is to be for the glory of God. Everything about your life as a believer, everything about my life as a believer, is to be to glorify Him and honor Him and point people to Him. And if it means suffering physically or otherwise, then then the Scripture says don't look for suffering for heaven's sake. Believe me, you won't have to. But when it comes, reflect back the glory of God and the power of God and God's provision in your life. Don't whine about it and feel sorry for yourself, which is the American way. But Jesus says, I want you to know this man is blind so that God's glory might be seen. But what about our sufferings? How does the grace of God engage your sufferings. And and I realize your sufferings are like my sufferings. They are not real sufferings usually. Oh, I know we, we can have cancer and we can have terrible things, and those are bad. But most of our sufferings are, are not that way at all. Most of our sufferings are things that just sort of <sighs> we have to endure, we have to put up with, we have to tolerate, if you will. But But how does God engage your sufferings? Can we, you know, we can know the right answer. I mean, I've told you the right answer for two weeks now. You ought to see God's grace engaging your your suffering so that God can be glorified. That is the answer. You know that answer. I've taught you that answer for six and a half years now or or longer. We've talked about that is the right answer. But knowing the answer, even though it's a hard answer, we can sure make it sound like just a pat answer. Just like, oh well, it's just for the glory of God. It's deeper than that. It's more significant than that. The the Scripture really insists that we never try to make a quick fix out of suffering. We never try to to give a pat answer out of suffering, but rather that we really and truly try to live it out over time in the particulars, understanding it. and, and, And as we act in the way that acts out and works out the works of God in our life, that's important. And that's significant. This song, How Firm a Foundation, this great hymn, is a hymn that is a little unusual in our hymn book. One of the things unusual about it that kind of, I think, makes it kind of neat, a little bit, one of its charms, if you will, is that it's anonymous. Nobody knows who wrote it. Only God and, and the author know who wrote it, and the author is long since dead because it first appeared in a hymn book around 1760-something, so so he's long gone. So God's the only one who knows who wrote it. But it has such a great and powerful message that, that it, it's important that we think about the hymn in light of this scripture. Uh, another thing about it is it has a unique voice. As we were singing this morning, you know, the, the voice changed on some of the songs. Most of the songs we sing are, sings, are, are songs of praise to God. We sing to God. And we did that in, in like, receive the glory and only your mercy, only your grace. We're, we're talking to him and we're acknowledging great truths that affect our lives. Some of them we sing to one another. Come people of the risen king. That, that's, a, that's a voice of, of acknowledging who he is and talking about his attributes some. But we're singing to one another. Come people of the risen king. Come and join in and let's sing together. So the voice is either usually to God or to one another. In how firm a foundation, the voice in the first verse is kind of an acknowledgement of calling one another to worship. 
But in every verse after that, it's God's voice speaking to us. We are quoting God. We are singing the words of God that we might hear Him. If you'll notice in the hymn book, you don't have a hymn book, but if you had a hymn book, you would notice in the hymn book that there are quotation marks around every verse after the first verse because it's a quotation. Pretty much a paraphrase in each place of some scripture, which I'll point out to you as we sing that along in a minute. But it's, it's an understanding. But understand, it's God doing most of the talking in this particular hymn, and it's tremendous truth. There's also six verses to, to how firm a foundation, and so I've got six points to my sermon, and, and we, will, uh, we will sing all six of them. If you go to the Baptist hymnal, or most other hymnals, you'll only find four verses. It's my estimation that we've left out two of the best ones. So that's why we're going to sing them today and do it. And I need your help, so don't let me down. The first stanza of How Firm a Foundation really is a stanza that simply says, like the Scripture does so often, listen, verily, verily, hear the word. It's a song that says now, as the people of God gathering around, listen to what God has to say because it's important. And so I hope you can read that. It's a little smaller than we normally have on the screen. But I want us to sing that together. You don't have to stand. We'll stay seated because this is the sermon, not the song part of the service. But I want us to sing that together. And hear the words. Ready? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in Listen. The writer of the hymn says, you know, God has laid an excellent foundation, a firm foundation for you, for your faith in his excellent word. It is his word that instructs us. It is his word that we listen to. It is his word that we hear. And so the very first thing I want you to understand as we think about this is listen to what God has to say. He's spoken to you. What more can he say? He's given you his word. He's given you his son who is the living word. What more can he say? Hear what the Lord has said. Paul wrote young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19 and he said this, The firm foundation of God stands having this seal the Lord knows who are his. There's the foundation. There's the seal for every believer. You want to know what God is showing you in your sufferings and in your troubles and in your struggles? He's showing you that he has a firm foundation, that he is a firm foundation, and it's centered in and founded upon his word. So there we have the call. There we have the, the, uh, the hymn writer saying, listen to what God has to say. And then we have the second verse that talks about, I am with you. And now we go to hearing the word of God. Fear not, I am with you. Let's sing it. And 
I am with you. God says, I want you to understand something. When you're going through troubles, when you're going through sufferings, when you're going through trials, whatever those might be, I am there. I am there to keep you from becoming discouraged and dismayed. I am there because I am your God. I am there to strengthen you and cause you to stand so that you will not fall. I am there to uphold you by my righteous, omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty hand. What a glorious truth. Really, the, the hymn writer there is, is more or less paraphrasing uh, Isaiah 41.10, where Isaiah says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. The hymn writer and Isaiah are in full complement there, in full understanding that when we go through troubles, when we, have, when we have suffering, when we have difficult times, He is there with us. He will not desert us. He will not lead us. That's exactly what God said. I am with you. I am your God. I will still give you aid. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will cause you to stand. I will uphold you by my all-good, all-righteous all-powerful, omnipotent hand. I mean, there's a promise there out of God's Word and through the hymn that we need to grasp. That no matter where we are, what kind of difficulty we're going through, if we are in Christ, He is there to protect us. You know, the the old statement, he, he He never promised to keep us from going through hard times, but He always promised He would go with us through the hard times. And that's, that's an absolute truth and an absolute thing that we need to understand. So we understand the, psalm, the, the hymn writer and the psalmist both say, listen, hear what God has to say, and then there is the promise that I am with you to protect you and to strengthen you. Then there's the third verse that talks about I'm with you with a purpose. That's my third point. Listen, I'm with you, and I'm not just with you. I'm with you with a purpose. So hear these words and sing these words together. with you. I will uphold you. I will protect you by my righteous, omnipotent hand. But he says here, I'm with you for a purpose. It's not just that I'm there because you haphazardly fell into this and and somehow you couldn't get out of it, so I'm there to, 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 to keep you from struggling in the middle of it. But he says, I, I, he takes us there with a purpose. Notice that first stanza, that first line. When through the deep waters, I call you to go. The, this, the understanding is there that they're not just there catching God off guard. That God's not surprised when you find yourself in deep waters, troubling times, sufferings. 
As a matter of fact, the writer understands what Isaiah said in Isaiah 43, 2, that God calls us to go through these times. But it says in, in Isaiah 43, 2, it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And, though the ri- and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will my flame burn you. Now, the idea is there that you are going into these times for a purpose. Now, we know that Jesus said that this one was born blind and had been blind all his life for a purpose, for a reason. And, and what the psalmist is saying, or what Isaiah is saying, and, and what the hymn writer is saying is this. Listen, there are reasons why you go through what you go through. And God calls you to those, but he never leaves you alone in the middle of them. He calls you there to teach you things, to, to, to bless your troubles, to sanctify your deepest distresses. Your, your troubles, your sufferings are envisioned there as deep waters and rivers. I, Isaiah and the, and, the, and the hymn writer are both alluding, I think, to when God's people face the Red Sea. Some of you have been watching the, the Bible on, on the History Channel on uh, Sunday nights, and, and we know that there they showed the Red Sea being parted and the children of Israel going through. There was a great trouble when they got to that Red Sea. I, I still like, by the way, Cecil B. DeMille's version of it better than, than this one. But, but they come to the Red Sea. They've got a real, they've got a real problem. They're, they're looking at the sea in front of them, and they're hearing the hooves and, and the chariots of Egypt's army behind them. And, and they have nowhere to go, and that army is coming not to just take them back. They're, they're coming probably to kill most of them and take some of the stronger ones back for the, the slave labor they needed. But they're in a tough place. And so the waters parted by God's grace and God's power. They went through, and as the army chased them, the waters came tumbling back on them and drowned Pharaoh's army. And that's the illusion that Isaiah and the hymn writer are making, that they came to the Red Sea. There was a great problem, a great stress and struggle, and yet God saw them through it. And and then talks about the rivers will not overflow you. When the children of Israel came to the Jordan River, ready to cross into the Promised Land, the the Jordan River was at flood level, and there was was water everywhere. They couldn't get into the Promised Land. And God parted the river, and they went through on dry land, even into the Promised Land. And what... Isaiah wants you and me to understand, and what the hymn writer wants us to understand is this. God will not let, God will not let your troubles drown you. God will, you know, Paul said to the Corinthians, he will, he will not put any more on you than you are able to bear with his grace and with his strength. He, he cares about you, and so his, his, your troubles, your sufferings are there with a purpose. I mean, in promising this, God explicitly doesn't say or mean that he will give you comfort in life. Never in Scripture. Now, I know you hear the TV preachers tell it. It's all about comfort. It's all about how easy you can be. How, how, what a life of ease you can experience if you just, just come to Christ and just trust Christ. But God is making it clear that, that we're not called to a life of comfort. Warm, fuzzy feelings are not there just because He is a friend who is going with us through troubling times. 
but rather that God is playing a much more active and powerful role in everything in our life. And this stanza is filled with the meaning of, of these truths. God himself calls us into the deep waters. God sets the limit on those waters and on those sorrows. God is with you and me actively bringing good out of your troubles, Romans 8, 28, if you will. And in the context of these distressing events, God changes you to become more like him. It's the purpose. That's the reason they come, that he can chisel away what doesn't look like Christ and you become more like him. So I'm there with you, and I'm there with you for a purpose, and I kind of segue with God changing you to become like him to the fourth stanza, which talks about my loving purpose is your transformation. My loving purpose is your transformation. Let's sing that together. My loving purpose, God says, is your transformation. Again, there's the metaphor of fiery trials. We, we saw in, in Isaiah 43, 2, he said, When you walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And, and here it kind of carries that over, but it also thinks about that very clearly from Isaiah 43, 2, that these fiery trials are not there to destroy you. They're not there to hurt you. They're there to transform you. But, but it even goes further in Peter's first epistle when, when Peter promised from God in, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, when he uses the, the metaphor not just of fire but of the smelting furnace. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your, proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, Peter says, listen, our lives are like being put in a, a smelting furnace to burn away dross, to burn away impurities, to burn away sin, that we might be, we might be made stronger, that our gold, the gold of our life, might be purified in every respect, and that we might come out of that bringing glory and praise to God, and that we might come out of that experiencing great joy. Listen, tough times are tough. Suffering is tough. Nobody ever said it wasn't. 
But when you see how the hand of God brings you through those times and you come out to, to, to see the result on the other side somewhat, maybe sometimes on earth, maybe sometimes not until heaven, but when that does happen, there is great joy when you see God's provision, is there not? Think about that man born blind in John chapter 9. Do you think, and we'll get into this later when we see what he does, but just forgetting that we know anything else about him, except that we do know that Jesus is going to make him see with 20-20 vision right after the passage we've read. Do you think that when he saw for the first time after being blind his whole life, he went, hmm, boy, that's something. Do you think he said, wow, I guess this was worth waiting on? Or, wow, not as pretty out here as I thought it was. I don't, I don't know, you know. You think he said any of those things? Of course he didn't. This man, when he saw Christ's provision in his life for a physical need that he had had his whole life, and when he could not see anything blind from birth, all of a sudden he could see. I don't, I, John doesn't go into a lot of detail, but I've got a feeling he was jumping and dancing, proving he wasn't a Baptist. He was jumping and dancing and celebrating and shouting and lifting his hands and praising. And I, mean, I doubt they shut him up for an extended period of time. It, it, he, was, he, was, he was given a joy, no doubt, that was unlike anything he'd ever known. We know that too when we see the provision of God, the grace of God taking us through the tri- troubled times. Scripture also promises, and the hymn writer shows us, that not only is he with us, not only is he with us for a purpose, not only is his purpose to be with us for our transformation, lovingly for our transformation, but it is that he will be with us to the end of our life. We never sing this hymn, this verse, I don't think. But boy, it's so rich. Let's sing it together. That even, I put even, it's E apostrophe E-N, in, because it's got to get it in there. So sing it short, but sing it as we sing this together. says, I'll prove my love to you, I'll prove my grace to you all the way to the end of your life. It's not just for your youth, it's not just when you, when you feel good, it's not just when you're healthy and, and, and strong in your youth. As a matter of fact, if you read Psalm 71, the psalmist says this, he said, for you are my hope, O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. 
Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. You see, the word hoary hairs, who knows what a hoary hair is? Sounds terrible. Gray, graying hair, white hair. He's talking about age here. When, when gray hair adorns my temples, when I've been around a long time, when I've seen it all, I know that I still don't have the sufficiency to get through it. I need your sufficient grace. And so he says, I want you to know that when old age, in old age, my people shall prove my sovereign, my eternal, my unchangeable love. I have a friend who years ago said to me, he was well in his 80s, and he looked at me one day as I was visiting his home. He's not from here in Somerset. He's from uh, Florida. But he looked at me one day when I was visiting his home. He said, you know, Bill, you know, Pastor, growing old is not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> it's just not for the wimps. It's not for the weak. And I'm learning that more and more every day. But the, thing, the truth of this is that, that God wants us to see, and this anonymous hymn writer wants us to see, is that God doesn't ever quit shaping you and forming you and making you what he wants you to be in this life. His trials, your suffering, will always be a part of your life. But he will always be there with you in the middle of it. And then the final stanza and the final point of my sermon is that he will never fail you. He will never fail you. Let's sing that together. Psalm 10, the psalmist is basically saying the predator is after you, the, the lion is roaring and prowling and desiring to destroy you, but as we've already seen, directly faced with this form of significant suffering, God never fails his people. Here's the psalmist from Psalm, 1, from Psalm 10, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. David crying out to God there says, listen, I know you have heard me. You're inclining your ear to me. You will vindicate the orphan. You will vindicate the oppressed, your people who are under stress and strain and suffering. And, and, and uh, there will come a day when the, the man who is of the earth, that is those who are not of the covenant of Christ, will no longer cause terror, will no longer cause struggle. God says, 
I will never fail you. The soul, the person that on Jesus has leaned and trusted for strength, for repose, for protection, for care. I will not, I will not, notice that repeat by the hymn writer uh, for emphasis. I will not, I will not desert to his foes, your foes, whether it's a physical sickness foe or a physical human foe. I won't desert you. That soul, though all hell, every demon in hell should seek to shake, desire, endeavor to shake, I'll never No, never, no, never forsake. Wow. I hope you never, ever, ever, never sing this hymn again in the same way you have in the past. Because I hope you see that what the hymn writer is saying there, this anonymous writer that only God knows who wrote it, but but was certainly relying upon God's Word and the inspiration of God's Word to write it, when he says, listen, it is so that the works of God might be displayed in you. Why do you suffer? Why do you have struggles? Why do you have pains? Why do you have sicknesses? It's so that God might be glorified in you. Yes, it's as a result of the fall. Yes, it's as a result of sin in the world. But it's all there because God wants to show His sufficiency. God wants to show His grace to you. God wants you to see His all-powerful, omnipotent hand. God wants you to see His sovereign grace, His sovereign power. As He said in the earlier one, you know, His sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. He wants you to know His presence, know His power in your life. But all of that, that as you experience it and know it, you might glorify Him in the world in which you live that they might see His work in your life manifested for His glory. When we sang that song earlier, Receive the Glory, Psalm 15, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be all the glory. Why do you suffer? Well, sometimes it's because you brought it upon yourself, right? But even in that, that suffering is to let you learn about the sufficiency of God's grace. That suffering, no matter what the cause, is for you to experience the omnipotent power of God in your life. That suffering is so that you might learn that power, learn that grace, And manifest it to a world that desperately, desperately needs to know it. Wow. What a great truth. What a great truth. Do you know that truth in your life? Do you you know Christ? So that you can lean upon Him for repose. You see, there is that step you take. Oh, it's only His mercy, only His grace, only His Spirit. But what He plants within you is a desire to know Him, a desire for Him. He doesn't grab you by the nap of the neck and say, okay, now I'll believe for you. There's belief that you must, there's that step of faith you must take. Someone asked me, how do I know that God's working in my life? 
My simple question is this. Do you desire Christ? Do you desire Christ? Not do you desire to miss hell or not do you desire to have all your troubles solved. I hope we've put that to rest today. But do you desire Christ? No one desires Christ unless the Spirit of God is working in their life. And then you cry out, Lord, have mercy on me and set me free from this body of sin, this body of death. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes from the voice of God. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that you will teach us this great truth. That you and your word are a firm foundation, the source of your grace and truth. And Lord, that when we walk through difficult times, you are walking with us. Maybe here this morning, God is calling you to himself. God is saying, come and follow me. Come and trust in me. I invite you to Christ. Maybe you'd come and say, Bill, I don't, I don't fully understand that. Help me understand it. Either I or somebody will help you understand that this morning. Perhaps God's leading you to be a part of this church family. You come and express that desire before the Lord and before this people. Father, use your truth, your word, even this great hymn remind us of your provision. For we pray in Jesus' name.